0: Our text for this Lord's Day comes from Song of Solomon, chapter 2, beginning our study in the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon. Hear now God's holy word. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word, for its preservation, for its communication, for its translation, for the way that we have it now in front of us. We can read it, we can hear it, we can, as as it were, hear your very voice speaking to us by your Holy Spirit now. And so cause us to understand it, to receive it in such a way that it would shape our lives, that we would be transformed by every encounter with your word, that we would hide it in our hearts, that everything we do or say would be shaped by its truths, by its precepts, by your law, by, the, by your guiding word. So Father, grant us all of these blessings now as we hear your word and spend time thinking through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Whatever happened to the romantic comedy? If you look at the top movie releases over the last decade or so, there have not been any significant romantic comedies released by Hollywood in a very long time. But as long as there have been movies, there have been these funny little films about the adventures and misadventures of men and women becoming attracted to each other, doing the delicate dance of figuring each other out and growing in mutual romantic affection. Depending on when you grew up, uh, the stars were different. Uh, You might remember watching Cary Grant and Doris Day and Audrey Hepburn, or Katherine Hepburn, and Jimmy Stewart. Or uh, in my generation, we had Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks every couple of years in a different movie. And uh, we, we had those, and we remember them and, uh, and, and how special they were. But today, in a great ocean of superheroes and gross-out horror and the same computer-animated kids movie every six months, you know, it just keeps, they keep doing the same thing again with different animals. Uh, studios are not investing in romance. And if they're not investing in something, it's not because they're making some kind of artistic decision. If they're not investing in something, it's not because they're principally opposed to it. It's because there's no money in it. There's no money in romance because romance is dead. You you can't celebrate romance in a society that is addicted to watching obscenity on the internet. You can't celebrate romance in a population that is in love with images which demand nothing from you. We, we have a population of people essentially in love with themselves. Romance requires a story, and there's no story in obscenity. Romance takes work. It, it requires you to adjust yourself and to invest in another, to not only be attracted to another, which is easy. It's easy to be attracted, but to be attractive, to, to do the work necessary to change yourself, to be attractive to another person. Uh, Romance requires another. (laughs) It requires another person who has a body sexually differentiated from yours. A male requires a female. A female requires a male. Uh, Romance requires another who is not confused about who they are genetically, just as you cannot be confused about who you are. There's no romance in this hellscape of confusion that we've created. And this is just what Satan is after, right? When there's no marriage, there's no offspring. As long as there's no offspring, there's no holy seed. Satan is always after the woman and her seed. And if he can kill marriage, he can kill uh, the, the offspring, and he thinks he's won something here. He thinks, thinks he's achieved something. Well, romance is dead, and by the way, while we're talking about it, so is comedy. Comedy's dead too. Uh, many comedians refuse to perform on college campuses anymore because they don't get laughs. They get boos. They get arguments, you know, you know but, but woke culture doesn't laugh at anything. It, it certainly can't laugh at itself. It can jeer. It can gripe but it has no sense of humor. It's because Satan has no sense of humor. Satan's great sin is pride. Satan is full of himself, and he has a very thin skin. That's why prophets like Elijah uh, get so much traction by mocking the, 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 the Satanists and their, and their worship. Um, real humor is impossible for Satan because real humor requires us to humble ourselves. In order to laugh, you have to reveal something of yourself and loosen up. Humor to some degree is self deprecating it 's requiring us to to l- let ourselves loose a little bit and and humble ourselves, which is why i 've always made it an uh, effort and have deliberately worked to raise kids with thick skins. Uh, We can't raise thin-skinned children. You must not be so prideful that you cannot laugh at yourself. You must be able to laugh at yourself, to laugh at folly, especially if it is your own folly. If it is your own folly, you have to own it and you have to laugh at it. Psalm 2 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. And if God laughs, then it's godly to laugh. So, Uh, we must have and recover comedy. But our society has killed comedy and we've killed romance, so no romantic comedies. And that's tragic because we've always had these stories about the adventure of relationships, even going back to antiquity, and hopefully in coming weeks I can make references to some of those, um, but these, these uh, stories about the adventure of relationships capture our imagination because this is the drama that the world is built on. That is, put simply, the, the story that the world is built on is the story of Christ wooing his bride giving himself sacrificially for her, calling out to her, leading her, and making her ready for her wedding. Of course, as we read uh, covenant history and redemptive history, the woman is not always willing. She pursues other men. She gets in trouble. She gets taken advantage of. And so he has to rescue her. Ultimately, he has to die to save her. But Here's the comedy. Here's the hilarity. Here's the part that makes you want to skip and run and laugh. He is resurrected. That is the most joyful, happy thing ever. He is resurrected. After he dies to save her, he, he comes back from the grave so that she can be brought to life too, and they both have life together. That biblical metanarrative out of which all other stories flow, it depends upon a distinctive male and a distinctive female, two different kinds of human with sexually differentiated bodies, with two different roles to play, two different but equally good and right and honorable ways of being human. There is a female way of being human, and there is a male way of being human, and they too reflect the image of God. Two different kinds of glory that are put together into something that is greater than the sum of its parts. And when these two meet, it creates new possibilities, new creation, life and joy and blessing abound. I've got great news for you. The future is not androgynous, the future is not asexual, the future is heterosexual because at the consummation of history, uh, we have a wedding of a savior and his bride, a man. Man, the man, the man, the second Adam, and his bride. Jesus, the man, marries his bride, and that's where we're headed. Um, so, all of these uh, insanities that we are constantly being assailed with—understand that these are fads. These are uh, the, these are not the, the, these are pet rocks. You know, these are Rubik's cubes. Right? They're they're just not going to be around. Right? The future is Jesus and his bride the future is not androgynous. It is not asexual. Lest we think that somehow that's, that's where we're all headed. It's not. This celebration, this coming together of man and woman, this, this exulting in the wonder of being created as male and female is distilled in this high-octane, 80-proof book of the Bible, this Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. It's a love story and it's set as a song. It's set as an opera or a musical where everyone is singing about this relationship between a woman and her beloved, and the beloved is the shepherd king, who we know as Solomon. This is a romantic comedy. There is humor. There is playfulness. There's also drama. There's love to be won. There are threats to be managed. There are challenges to be overcome as the two draw together. Now, that's not to imply that it's easy to read, because it's not. In fact, it's fairly complicated. Uh, On average, every other verse in this book contains a word that appears nowhere else in the uh, Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, which, which gives it this very exotic atmosphere. It, it names places that aren't mentioned anywhere else. And so when you read the Song of Songs, it, you're, uh, it doesn't sound like the rest of the Bible, and for good reason. It, it, it uses a different vocabulary. There's a, a constant shift of voice, which is something else that, that makes it difficult for us to, to, to read. You have to continually ask, and you have to stay on your toes and say, who is speaking? Who are the characters in this song? Well, there's the woman she's called the Shulamite. Her name is the feminine version of Solomon. Now his name in Hebrew, Solomon, is Shlomo, and she's the uh, Shlomoite. She is the Mrs. Solomon. Her name is the feminine form of Solomon, the Shulamite. So you have uh, Mrs. Solomon, Shulamite, and she's accompanied with, by, by the daughters of Jerusalem who form a chorus, who respond to her, who rejoice with her, uh, who she has dialogue with through this song. Then you also have the king, the shepherd king, Solomon, who is the beloved. Um, his uh, beloved in, um, in Hebrew is Dodi, and she, she calls him uh, Dodi which is a lovely little word, that not that, it? You'd call your beloved Dodie. I don't know why that is so delightful to me, but I like it, <laughs> Dodie. Um, and so he, uh, he is her beloved. He has a number of solos, and then there's a chorus of men, perhaps the brothers of the Shulamite, the brothers of Mrs. Solomon. So if you were casting this opera, you would have a female soloist, you would have a male soloist, you would have a female chorus, and you would have a male chorus, like in a wedding. You have the bride and her bridesmaids. You have the groom and his groomsmen. And, and that sort of cast also shows up in certain uh, uh, musicals and, and other um, you know, romantic comedies. You have the woman and her friends. You have the man and, and his companions. And that's, how, those are the, that's the cast of this, of this opera. So because of that, it can be really difficult sometimes, if we're not paying attention, it can be difficult to understand... Who is singing? It's not always obvious in the English translations. And, and, and then not only is the singer uh, constantly shifting, but the scene is shifting. The setting shifts. They're inside and now they're outside. They're in a vineyard and now they're in a bedroom and now they're, there's a parade. And uh, so you have to keep track of the setting. And then, and then there are these phrases that are not only difficult to translate, but they're difficult to interpret. Either the reference is lost to time, or there's a clue and a meaning that, that is buried, and, and we haven't figured it out yet. However, the complexity of this story, the complexity of this book, is its glory. The fact that it's one of the smallest books of the Old Testament, and at the same time one of the most difficult books of the Old Testament, makes it a popular book in church history to engage with. It it invites us to come crack its code, to walk around in it and to understand the world of symbol and song and the world of romance that it provides us. That that complexity has engendered a number of interpretations throughout church history. Not all of them helpful, but many of them quite quite interesting. And you can find commentaries that go into all the various interpretations. We don't have time to look at all of them. We're not even going to try. But one that I find fascinating and engaging is to view this book as a highly stylized, symbolic retelling of the covenant and the relationship between Yahweh and Israel and their history together, beginning with the Exodus. At the beginning of the song, the Shulamite is under forced labor, longing for the presence of The bridegroom, just as Israel was in Egypt, longing for the Lord to deliver her from slavery. He arrives and he calls her, not just to anywhere, he calls her in the Song of Songs, he calls her out to the wilderness. And and there's a scene in chapter three where the sedan chair of of Solomon, you know, uh, where you would carry ancient kings on a throne and and he would be born under the weight of his servants, the sedan chair in, in chapter three of Solomon is coming up out of the wilderness. It's being born by men, surrounded by an army, with pillars of smoke smelling like myrrh and frankincense. Well, what, what kind of image is that? Well, it's very similar to the scene of the Ark of the Covenant, the throne of God being carried up out of the wilderness following a pillar of smoke smelling like the incense of the, of the tabernacle. So there are links like that that indicate something more is going on than simply a love song. There are these allusions to points in, in Israel's history. There are scenes where the woman seeks her beloved, but he's gone, and she goes looking for him, uh, recalling periods of israel's history where um, like like the time of the judges, where God abandoned her to idols, and the land was Ichabod, the glory had departed before before she's revived, and she goes and and renews covenant again and goes goes to find him. Um, This book is full of temple imagery. There are lilies and pomegranates, which all feature in the architecture of of the temple. There are marble pillars and cedar beams. There's strong incense. And this language all intensifies as the lovers draw close related to the arrival of the Lord to his temple to commune with his people. After the presentation of the temple theme, there 's another separation and another reunion there 's exile and restoration throughout the book, whereupon, after this, we get the climax of the book where we read that love is as strong as death that 's the theme of israel 's history and the theme of the Bible. this resurrection theme that love triumphs over death it 's an expression of the passionate love that God has for his people so so that 's an interesting interpretation and one that i 'm going to keep in the background as we as we study through it that That the book is an allegory that it's a a symbolic retelling of the history of Israel through um, slavery and union and exaltation and separation and exile and reunion, um, covenant breaking and covenant renewal. All of these things are there and they seem to be in order in following Israel's history up to the time of Solomon at least. That's one thing. That's one, that's one way of reading it. Another theme, another way of reading it is to um, to watch the elevation and the glorification of the bride um, and, and, and put it against the backdrop of the book of Revelation. W- one way to read the book of Revelation is to see the glorification of Jesus through the glorification of his bride. The bride, the church, is matured through suffering. She's conformed to the glory of Jesus through suffering trial and and temptation jesus suffers and is glorified and now the church follows him into suffering and trauma in order to share in the glory of jesus Um, And both the Song of Solomon and and Revelation end on the same note. What's the last verse in Song of Solomon? The Shulamite says, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. That's that's how Song of Songs ends. How does the book of Revelation end? Jesus says, surely I'm coming. And uh, and then the church responds, uh, amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. Uh, It's as if the church is calling to Jesus, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices. So um, that's that's another very compelling, interesting way to read this book as a companion to to Revelation. But I'm going to leave those in the background, and there are so many more that, that we could allude to and study. Here's the approach that I would like to take in studying this book over the next few weeks. First of all, we'll read it for what it is. It's straight, literal, you know, a straightforward, literal reading. It is a love song between the Shulamite and her beloved Solomon. And we trust in God's good wisdom in giving us this book and knowing that it's inspired text. It's given us by the Holy Spirit. uh, We don't have to be prudish about it. Neither are we prurient about it. We're we're not going to... um, we're not going to be obscene, but we're not going to be uh, stuffy either. God is pure and holy, and God made men and women from head to toe, all the way down. So, um, as, I, as I say this, I also need to give uh, a, a couple of, um, well, a- acknowledgments. And one of that is that many of you are uh, children, and you are not married yet. Also, some of you, some of you are single, um, and uh, others of you are in difficult circumstances where, where talk of romance feels out of place. It feels, it feels out of joint. But this book is God's word to you as well. It is God's word. It is uh, every word of 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 the Bible is inspired. And so, how do we how do we read this in various circumstances in life? Um, How do we understand it and receive it? Well, uh, we we never um, do well by putting truths. In a box and covering them up and trying to ignore them. So, we're, 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 for everyone, uh, uh, we we all benefit when truth is proclaimed and when light is shined on the truth, and we all hear it and rejoice in it. But, but even more than that, um, because it's not simply literal, because there are other things here, we all we all benefit from it. So, so based on the literal reading, I want to make some. Uh, uh, allegorical interpretations about the love between Christ and his church, which it has a ton of information, a ton of instruction on the love between Jesus and his bride, which the text demands. The text demands, it it has, uh, it's full of theological statements, temple allusions, references to Israel's history, as I pointed out. And sure, it's a love song, but it's more than that. And these two readings are interdependent. Is it literal? Or is it allegorical? Which is it? Is it literal or is it symbolic? Yes, it is. It is is both. Genesis chapter 1 which we're all really familiar with. Genesis chapter one is highly stylized. Genesis one is poetic. It is rich with symbolism and it is 100% reliably true and historical. I don't understand why we have to pick one or the other. Why can't it be both if an infinitely artistic and creative God through his Holy Spirit inspires instruction and uh, historical information. Why can't it be lovely? God, why, why, why can't it be poetic? Why, why can't it be creative? Uh, so, uh, the literal and the allegorical uh, readings both uh, are critical, and they all, uh, each, inform each other. They shed light on each other. So, out of both readings, out of both the literal and the and the symbolic. I'll, I'll work to draw applications wherever we can about both men and women, our roles, our identities, our relationships to each other, and to our relationships to the church, as well as delving into what we see as, as a statement of Christ's love for His church and the love for the church, uh, the love of the church for her Savior. My goal is going to be over the next couple of weeks, the uh, next four weeks, to cover two chapters a week. There's no way I can say everything, but hopefully uh, we'll get done um, before Advent. And my big goal is to whet your appetite for your own further study and application. And so let's dive in. Chapter one, verse one. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. This is the title of the book. At the top of your Bible, like the top of my Bible, is printed The Song of Solomon. That's what's printed at the top of the page. But in, in the inspired text, The name of this book is Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Song of Songs, like Holy of Holies. King of Kings, Lord of Lords. What is the Holy of Holies? The Holy of Holies is the most holy place. The King of Kings is the most kingly king. He's the most preeminent king. He's the very model of kingship. Lord of Lords. What is that? Well, it means he's the most lordly lord the best Lord out of all the Lords. So this is the song of songs. What is that? Well, it's the songliest song ever. It's the most songiest song you'll ever song. The, it's the prototypical song. What's the best song ever written? There's no argument. It's here. It's right here in front of you. Best song ever written. Every other debate about the best song ever written, we're all arguing about number two which is He Stopped Loving Her Today by George Jones. That's the, that's the second. And then we'll all argue about number three after that. No, we can, we can debate. But, but this is the best song ever, according to the text. And remember, Solomon wrote, um, in 1 Kings, he wrote 1,005 songs and he wrote 3,000 proverbs. So this, uh, I'm sure, is counted among his 1,005 songs. And so we begin with the Shulamite singing. She sings. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth because or for your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. Her song doesn't begin with an abstract philosophical discussion on the nature and meaning of love, it begins with a demand for kisses. This is how she opens. I want kisses, or kiss me. That's how she starts. Not not just any kisses, by the way, but kisses on the mouth from my beloved. What a way to kick things off. What a a great way to start. She not only wants to kiss him, but she wants to smell him. She talks about how good he smells. He is attractive to her senses on every level. He, He is so attractive to her, and she acknowledges that that. I'm not the only one who desires you. She says, the virgins love you. Uh, Every, all the girls love you and they're right to do so because you're so adorable. So she says, I need to take you away from here or you need to take me away from here. Let's get away from everyone so I can have you to myself. This is a common theme. It's going to be repeated and intensified by both of them. Both of them are attractive to everyone of the opposite sex. And both of them are uniquely uh, attractive specimens of their own sex. So, so she is the most beautiful among all the women and he is the most handsome of all the guys. He's the uh, uh, captain of the uh, football team and she's the head cheerleader. I mean, they're, they're the top of, of both of both parties. She desires him but he is presently absent from her, which intensifies her longing. Now, reading this allegorically, we can see this description of the love between Yahweh and his covenant people, the love expressed between the church and uh, uh, her groom, Christ. And we sympathize with the longing of the woman for her beloved. St. Augustine so wonderfully prayed, Uh, He says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. That's the same longing that that I I want to be near you and I want to know your presence and your comfort. So the church longs for and desires the presence, the nearness of her Lord, which is a great comfort to her, which is a great delight for her. She needs him to draw near to her. Uh, She needs him close by. I, and I hope you can uh, sympathize with the longing of this woman, I need the Lord Jesus. I need, I need his nearness. I need his comfort and his his help. And so this cry for God to draw near to us is first answered when he camps among his people in the tabernacle, when the house of the temple is built and he lodges there with his people. And there's even a reference to that here because uh, immediately she talks about the fragrance of his good ointments. Your name is ointment poured forth. Uh, we're, We're reminded of the oil that anointed the priest, the incense that burned on the altar, all of these good smells. God camped with his people. He dwelt with his people at his house. He embraced his people in the inmost chamber of the temple but in a greater way. That was great. The tabernacle was good. The temple was better. It was wonderful. But in even a greater way, the anointed one, the the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not Jesus Christ. It wasn't Joseph Christ and Mary Christ, and they had (laughs) Jesus Christ. Christ is not a name. It's a title. And his title, Christ, means the anointed one. And, And so the anointed one, whose fragrance of his good ointments smell really good, the name of his ointment is poured forth, the anointed one comes to us and dwells with us by his spirit. So so the call of the church to her beloved is not simply, oh, I just want to possess knowledge of you, but she desires the Lord himself, which is not the same thing. You understand the knowledge of Jesus And Jesus himself are are two different things, right? We want not just knowledge, but Jesus himself. She cries out, I want you to kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. This is not a peck on the cheek or a peck on the forehead, but a a kiss between two lovers. Later on, the beloved sings, um, he says, the roof of your mouth is like the best wine. That kind of kissing, right? (laughs) Uh, she, she's not asking for this little thin-lipped, you know, mm, smack, you know, this little, the, the kind of kiss you'd give your grandma even. She's, that's not kind of the kind of kiss she wants. What is she asking for? She longs to be face to face with him, breathing the same air as him, for him to share his mouth with her. Think for just a moment how intimate and how important your mouth is to you. You would be greatly offended, put off, and you'd find it really weird if I walked up and stuck my finger in your mouth. It would, a little close, I don't know, what is that? Is it some tradition I don't know about? Your mouth is a very intimate place for you. Uh, Your mouth is where you take in necessary things from the world. You need air, we get that through our mouths. You need food, you get it through your mouth. You need water, you need drink, you get it through your mouth. Everything, every good thing you need from the world, you take in through your mouth, but your mouth also reveals what's inside of you. What you say shows what you're thinking. When you open your mouth, you reveal your internal secrets. So the mouth is the portal to take the world in, and to communicate outwards. And, and so when, when two lovers kiss, they bring each other into this most intimate space where you speak words to each other that are only for each other. That's why it's important uh, to, to, to be careful who you kiss. A couple of teenagers might say, well, we were, we were only kissing. Well, you don't, you don't understand how intimate a, a thing that, that is. Uh, kissing is in extremely intimate and close. In, in Numbers 12, um, God describes his relationship to Moses like this. He says, I spoke to Moses face to face. So, so to speak face to face, to share contact and communication on that intimate level is what she asks for. She is asking for that with her beloved. And we do too. We want that from our Lord because the Lord's breath gives us life. Adam was kissed by the breath of God, and he was made a living soul. Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, the Spirit comes as the breath of God and gives life to the church. So the desire for the kiss of the Savior is a desire for life. It's a desire for a new creation to be renewed and refreshed. Think of how renewed and refreshed you were by your first kiss from your beloved. Remember your first kiss and how that, that changed your world and set off all kinds of new possibilities. Remember how you kissed after you're taking your wedding vows, a, a kiss that seals the deal and creates an entirely new family. The, the breath of God, the kiss of God, creates and gives new life. The kiss of the Savior is the life Of the church, because when he draws close to her and speaks to her face to face, he gives her words of comfort and encouragement and words of forgiveness and also things he requires of her. There are duties that she has to perform and that she has to carry out. Uh, So that's what she's asking for. Um, And it's significant that this whole opera begins with a female solo. It's a song where she expresses a need for a physical expression of love she wants kisses she wants his embodied love his incarnate affection for her it's assumed by stuffy and prudish christians that women don't desire physical overtures of love or if they do desire it there's something wrong with them they shouldn't desire physical overtures of love Um, but that's not supported at all by the scriptures. Love does not become purer or more noble if it's disembodied love. Holy love is embodied love, which uh, we talked a little bit about last week when uh, Paul says, greet each other with a holy kiss. It's, it's not as if love with no touching is real love. You know, that's, that's pure love. No, that's Gnostic, and that's not real love at all. And that's a completely foreign concept to the Shulamite. Love means kisses and I need kisses and I need his kisses. The kisses from his mouth is the song that she starts with. This woman's position from the very beginning is neediness and this neediness is right. She needs to need him. Her desire is going to be granted and affirmed. Her desire is for a good thing and so therefore her desire is a good thing. This, this neediness is not a weakness. It doesn't make her inferior her neediness opens up the way for mutual fulfillment and glorification of both lovers. Um, okay, well, that's the first couple of verses. And uh, I'm going to have to ask you for a few more minutes this morning. I've been, I've been cutting it short the last few weeks. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but I have. So I'm going to ask you for a few more minutes as we, as we open up this book. So um, she says, draw me away. And the daughters of Jerusalem say, "Ah, oh, we're coming too. That's the very next thing. The daughters of Jerusalem, we will run after you. And then she says, the king has brought me into his chambers. And the daughters of Jerusalem say, we will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. And and then she sings again, rightly do they love you. Uh, They are right. All these ladies are right to be attracted to you, the beloved. Verse five, she sings, I am dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. And then she turns to the beloved and she says, tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. For why should I be as the one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? So while she's consumed with love for her beloved, she comments on her own appearance, which she fears might diminish her loveliness to him. Her skin is tanned. Her skin is dark because she's had to do manual labor outside. She doesn't have the pale, uh, delicate complexion of a wealthy lady who's never had to work outside under the sun. Um, But she confidently states, I'm dark." but lovely. She compares her dark skin to the coverings of tents, like the, like the coverings of the tabernacle, like the curtains of the temple. They're dark and they're glorious. And so they have glory. So do I. She's dark. Why? Because she's been put to forced labor, she says, by her brothers. They made her work in the vineyards while her own vineyard has been left untended. And she doesn't give a reason for this, but it reminds us of how Israel was enslaved in Egypt. She was forced to build Pharaoh's houses, tend his vineyards, how Israel was mistreated there. In service to Pharaoh, Israel was deprived of taking care of herself, of building her own society. And yet she goes through these trials and Yahweh's deliverance of her makes her lovely to Yahweh. He sets his love on her, not in spite of the marks of her suffering, but because she has suffered. In the same way, the church is made glorious Through her weakness, through her persecutions, the church limps her way to victory. The features of the church that make her appear ugly and undesirable in the world, the things that you look at of the church and make you feel contempt for her over, the things that you despise are the things that make her glorious to Jesus. And for Jesus, it is his scars and wounds. It is the marks of his suffering, which make him glorious to us. And so she says, I'm dark, but lovely. And he's going to agree. She calls out, she calls out to her beloved. Please tell me, tell me where you are. Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. For why should I be as the one who veils herself by the flocks of her companions? What is she talking about there? Remember how Tamar put on a veil and posted herself near the shepherds at the shearing festival when she deceived Judah into lying with her. What, what was Tamar doing? Well, prostitutes would veil themselves and hang around the working men to, to do their trade. Now, the Shulamite says, you, you need to tell me where you're going to be so I can come be with you. I want to be wherever you are. I'm not going to veil myself. I'm not going to act like a prostitute and hang around groups of guys hoping to find you somewhere. Now the king speaks for the first time in response to her. Verse 8, If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. He begins with a tease. He begins with a joke. Remember, she says, I don't, I don't want to just hang around the other guys. I don't want to just put on a veil and go hang around the other shepherds and try to look for you. And so he starts with a tease. He says, why don't you just follow the shepherds and go feed your little goats around their tents? What's that to me? It's a, it's a little good-natured ribbing. Uh, she's saying, I don't want any of the other, other boys. And he says, what's wrong with the other boys? I mean, maybe you'll find me, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll like one of them more than me. What's that to me? He's teasing her. Um, humor and playfulness are the bedrock of all kinds of healthy relationships. Um, When things go sour, particularly in marriage, humor is the first thing to go. You can't make a joke, you can't take a joke. There's too much tension. And even if you try to make a joke, it's taken the wrong way. But where there's grace, there's humor and lightheartedness. In Genesis, Abimelech looks out the window and he sees um, Isaac sporting with his wife, Rebekah. They're engaged in romantic play, teasing and bantering, like these two there's that spark there that little that little fiery you know that, that little uh, fiery teasing that that ignites even more passion. think of the way that um jesus bantered with the Syrophoenician woman. We've looked at, uh, at that in the past. Think of how God wrestled with Jacob, where Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you, until you bless me. This kind of wrestling, that kind of playfulness is necessary. The Lord says, do you really want me? Show me how much you want me. Tell me how much you want me. How bad do you want me? And so he does the same thing. He's, he's, just, he's just testing her a little bit. But he quickly reels it back in, because as we all know, there are limits to teasing, and it's a time to get serious. So he re- reinforces, he says, this attraction is mutual. He says, you're like a filly among Pharaoh's chariots. Gentlemen, any one of these lines you want to try out and let me know how it works, uh, you can text me and let me know if, if, that, if that one works for you. You're like a filly among Pharaoh's chariots. What does that mean? Well, she's like the gorgeous mare that drives all the choicest war horses crazy. When she runs across the field, she has their attention. They're all distracted by her. There's a legend about an opposing general who, when facing Pharaoh's chariots, sent out a mare in heat across the battlefield, and all of the chariot horses driving the army toward him Went sideways after the mare, and and Pharaoh's chariots were all uh, disrupted, and the attack was um, the the attack was a failure, um, and so that may be something like what he's uh, referring to here. All of the other horses are di- distracted now. Moving back to oh, we we got to keep this you know Jesus and his church. What what are we learning here, and what are we seeing? Yahweh's bride, when she is at her most faithful, recognizes that she doesn't want any other chariot. I'm sorry, she doesn't want any other shepherd. I don't want any other shepherd. I don't want to be attached to any other flock. I only want you. I don't want to be prostituted and abused by the other shepherds. I want to be attached to your flock. And, and he recognizes her desirability. He recognizes that the others are attracted to her as well. You're like a filly among the chariots. All of the other horses uh, notice your, attract, uh, your attraction and, and want to be with you just like Satan recognizes the beauty of the bride. That's why Satan wants her for himself. Satan is envious of the church, but he can't have her, so all he can do is try to corrupt her and destroy her. If we think of the other gods as real, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul calls the other gods demons. Um, think of them as real. Baal would love to have Israel, wouldn't he? Baal worshippers stink. Baal worshippers are ugly and they're filthy. Who wants them? Baal wants Israel. Israel. And and just think who or whatever Allah is. Wouldn't Allah love to have the church as his own rather than the poor people he has enslaved under darkness? Uh, Wouldn't he love to have the church? You You see, you and I, again, we look at the church and we see her warts and we see her scars. We see all of her shortcomings and failures. Jesus looks at the church and he says, you're a looker. You come into the room and you turn every head. You're a filly among the stallions. He, he talks of her adornments and the chorus of women uh, chime in. So he says, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. And then uh, the women chime in, we will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. And then she sings, while the king is at his table, my spicknard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Engedi." Uh, He says to her, behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. And she says to him, behold, you are handsome, my beloved, yet, yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters are our fur. Uh, So there's all this temple language, this garden language. We're going to spend more time on this, but this temple and garden language all mixed up with their adoration for each other. I'm going to keep moving. Verse uh, Chapter two, verse one. Um, And I'm going to try to at least get to verse seven. Uh, He says, uh, she says, she says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys um, and he says, like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. She's like this delicate, fragrant flower nestled among thorns. And then, and then she responds to, to him, like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. So in a, in, a, in a forest full of hardwood trees that don't bear any fruit, you're the apple tree. You're the tree that gives nourishment and delight and rest and, and shade. Um, And then in verse four, he brought me to the banqueting house. His banner over me was love. Um, A banner is like a flag. A banner is something you plant over something that you've conquered. So she is conquered and she has been conquered by his love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins, refresh me with apples for I am love sick. I am so consumed by desire and love for you that i can 't think of anything else I can 't do anything else i 'm so distracted by love that all I do is love you, and all I want is you she 's still singing, she sings his, his left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem by the gazelles or by the does of the field. do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Let him lay right here don 't wake him up until until it 's time uh, well uh, i 'm uh, acknowledged that i 'm way over time, so i 'm going to um, kind of hold right there and and reflect on for for just a minute as as we as we kind of reflect over this whole section that if this love defines the love between Christ and his church, then it also must to some degree define the love within the church, among the members of the body. Biblical love is not love of everything, love for everything. That's not biblical love. The infinite love without definition, without focus is impossible. And so biblical love, covenant love, is a love with a specific focus within the bounds of a relationship. The love between Christ and his people is, however, an unreserved love, uh, the kind of love expressed here between the woman and her beloved. It is a love with no shame. It is a love with no self-consciousness. Is that kind of love, which is reflected here between the beloved and, and his, his bride, is that kind of love also possible within the body of Christ. A love that is free, a love that is playful, a love that has no anxiety or awkwardness, a love with no reservations, a love with no hang ups. Is it possible? And we really have a hard time loving like that, loving each other. Why? Well, we've been hurt, we've been made to feel stupid, we've been taken advantage of. So we become reserved and walled off and go into protection mode. We become cold and aloof. The result is we don't indwell in each other's lives. We are not love sick for the body of Christ. We retreat to arm's length. I know we just left uh, Corinthians last week, but I want to take you back to Corinth one more time because last week we read how Paul encouraged the church there to contribute to the collection he was taking up for the church in Jerusalem. And when we get to the second letter, when we get to 2 Corinthians, we find out it's been a year and they haven't participated. What's the problem? Has Paul not been affectionate enough with them? He says in chapter 6, verse 11, he says, Oh, Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us. There's nothing that is restricting your love for us, but you are restricted by your own affections. You have shut yourself off to me. You are cold and aloof and you have walled yourself off to me. You've shut me out and you've shut yourself in. And I'm telling you to open yourself up to the possibility of an unrestricted, unmitigated love for the church and for the work of of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives them the example of the Macedonians in chapter 8. He talks about how the Macedonians freely offered and gave To this collection, he says, not only did they give as we hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. You're not going to give yourself to us this way unless you first give yourself to the Lord the way the Macedonians did. And maybe the reason you don't give yourself to us this way is because you don't love the Lord this way. You haven't opened yourself up to him. So how can you open yourself up to love us this way? You're not lovesick for the Lord. You're not going to be lovesick for the church. You have reservations. You have walls. You have barriers in your love for the Lord. Your heart is closed toward him. Give yourself to the Lord so you can give yourself to us. In verse six, he says, so we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, See that you abound in this grace also. You aren't abounding. Not one dimension of your life abounds. You're not abounding, and you won't until you follow the example of the Macedonians. Open up yourself. To, the, the, to love the Lord this way that this woman expresses her love for her king. Open up your life this way and then open yourself up to us. But the, you, can, you can predict the answer of the Corinthians, but we'll get hurt again. Paul opened up himself for these people in spite of the continual stiff arm and reproach and mocking and undermining that he received, the, the mistreatment he received from them. And so in chapter 12, and this will be the last one I read, chapter 12, verse 15, He says, this is all I've done for you. I've poured and poured and poured myself for you. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. You want to treat me this way? That's fine. That's on you. That's not the way I want it to be. I wish you'd follow my example. The more I love you, the less I'm loved. The more I give, the less you give. But you have to answer to God for that. I can't answer for you. You've got to answer to God, but I will continue to pour myself out for you in spite of your mistreatment of me. So back to the song of songs. (laughs) This text, this book gives us permission to be unreserved in our covenant love for the Lord Jesus, to be unreserved in our love for our husbands and wives, and to be unreserved in our love for each other within the bounds of the covenant. Don't be withholding. Don't be withdrawn. Don't pull back. Don't retreat. Abound in Love, cultivate this kind of desire for the nearness of the Lord Jesus. Recognize your built-in neediness for him, as she expressed, which is a good neediness. And wherever you are in life and whatever stage of life you're in, open yourself to love and be loved. Love the church the way that Jesus loves her. Orient yourself toward the church as her Lover, not her critic, not her accuser, certainly not her corrupter, but her lover. Love and be lovesick for Jesus and his bride. We'll study some more next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your church. Thank you for her beloved, her Savior. Thank you that we get swept up into this great romance between Jesus and his church and that we get to enjoy all the blessings and benefits of being his. And so uh, open us up by your Holy Spirit to love and to be loved in all of these ways. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.